Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And for today's episode, we're kind of looking out upon Armageddon blowing away uh, rather ferociously in the distance as a, almost like a whiteout uh, on Ibiza at the moment with the weather is just kind of blowing a hoolie. And um, it's creating some slight senses of uh, discombobulation in various communities I've um, been speaking to across the, the last few days. And I believe this is going to go on for another week. So don't have high, high, particularly high hopes for today's episode. I'm sure my guest will be the shining star, though. And I'm very grateful that she's um, blustered her way, Mary Poppins style, through the wind and the rain to grace us with her presence. And I'm very happy to say I'm here joined on my very own sofa by Bex from the Fermentistas. Hello. Hi, Joe. Lovely to be here with you. Thank you for um, yeah making your way through the, the the blowing wind and the and the howling gale. How is it out there? Uh, blowing wind, howling gales, raining cats and dogs, and uh, everyone's gone a bit bonkers, in my opinion, myself included. <laughs> what is it about Ibiza? I think you know, where the weather goes a bit like this, like everyone seems to kind of um, lose it. I don't know. I guess it's just a difference in climate, you know. From when it gets really hot as well, we all go a bit like kooky too. So. And I think rain is just a good excuse for everyone to kind of like not drive well because they can't see, uh, race home, be a bit aggro. So there's all this kind of like sort of kind of just temp- tension in the air, no? I mean, yeah, that you've described it perfectly. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like that all the time. People drive badly here. But then, yeah, caution is, uh, is a good thing at this time. I mean, I've seen some horrendous crashes actually in this kind of weather so I'm quite happy that we're cozied up here in this little um bolt hole so to speak let's get off the roads batten down the hatches absolutely I mean tell us a little bit about I mean I think you were living in um, Amsterdam I believe before you came to Ibiza and I've asked you a few little uh, you know questions about that in the past but I'd love to hear a bit more about your time there and what led you and Jacob your partner to uh, your husband in fact to moving to Ibiza Amsterdam, 260 days of rain a year, I should be used to this. Yeah, I moved to Amsterdam in 99, straight after finishing university. I didn't want to go into the rat race in England, so I decided to just... Actually, I was going to go and pack flower bulbs in a factory in just outside of Amsterdam, and I got there too late for the season, so then I was like, okay, what do I do, go home or continue? So then I continued, I lived... Uh, Moved to Amsterdam, worked in coffee shops for about two years, got lost in a cloud of smoke and um, then slowly started to surface out of that. Um, I had multiple different jobs from working in theatre, making jewellery, like on the streets, sort of artisanias, you know. And then I opened and made a massage company, which is still running now. Our journey to here, we've kind of like, I was on my way out of Amsterdam for a long time and then Jakob and I got together and um yeah and then it was kind of like enough for a while you know it was like yeah you know, i was fi- trying to find somewhere else to live so i was traveling around every winter in and out of mexico mostly then i got together with Jacob, and it kind of tamed me and calmed me for about five years but he was on his way out and i was on my way out then suddenly after those five years we were both like it's actually not enough we still need to leave so we would travel every winter trying to find the next place to go, but um, 
It was quite challenging being two people. He particularly wanted to live in Australia. I was very focused on Spain because I could speak Spanish from the time I'd spent in Mexico. And, um, and yeah, we were just kind of procrastinating for many years. Then when we, we did a trip to New Zealand and then to Bali, and in Bali um, he had a motorbike accident that nearly killed him. And, um, and it just shifted our lives completely. It was a, a really big slap in the face and a really big wake-up call to see the film between life and death as being very thin. And um, so we decided, let's stop procrastinating and like go for it. Came here to visit a friend and after a week I was like, this is it. This is somewhere in Spain. Spain, not Spain. I mean, you know, it's Ibiza. Um, but we could use this as a stepping stone to get out of the swamp, as I was calling Amsterdam at that time. And, um, and then go from there. You know, it's a place where we can work, we can, we can make business. That at the time I thought it was a place that sort of in, encouraged entrepreneurs and startups. And, um, and then within three months, we were here living. So that's how that happened. There's a lot to do, uh, rewind uh, to in that little uh, soliloquy there. I think, like, number one, how did Jacob almost died in a, in a bike crash? I mean, that's, that's quite serious, obviously. I mean, what, what happened? He was uh, following behind a friend on his motorbike. I was on another motorbike with another friend. And the friend in front stopped suddenly because they arrived at the place and they were like oh there it is stopped suddenly Jacob skidded behind them and the bike went down and at the same time as his bike went down another motorbike drove on the other side of the road and basically drove straight into his head so it was uh, two uh, brain hemorrhages multiple skull fractures collapsed lung it was a very intense accident Four days in intensive care, two weeks in the hospital, five weeks in recovery. I thought I heard you. Oh, yeah. Super traumatic time. Was it just the wind? But it was, you know, now it was a kind of blessing because it really kick-started us into making positive moves and choosing to live the dream that we've been dreaming. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I kind of arrived to Ibiza with post-traumatic stress um, and he's still in recovery. We were like just under a year before, yeah, under a year ago it had happened before we moved here. So, I mean, I do remember the first time I met Jakob, he had a very, you know, a raspy kind of element to his, his voice. And I believe that was a, you know, a side effect of, of the accident. So that was obviously, you know, completely changed changed his life and changed your perspective, as a, I guess, as a couple. But to see that actually unfold in front of your eyes, is absolutely, yeah, traumatising. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, a really, really traumatic experience. And it took me quite a long time to get over, actually. I'd have, like, sort of memory flashes where it'd come up again and I was sort of reliving through that again. But, uh, yeah, I got there eventually. And his voice got better because he has one of the vocal cords is uh, paralysed. And now he's kind of, he's not as raspy as he was, which I semi-miss, but it's okay. <laughs> the raspy sexy husband. He just, yeah, he needs to catch a little bout of flu now and again just to bring bring that little coffee. I don't know, I, I find like, you know, whenever I've got a cold, I always feel like I sound really, really raunchy, but I probably don't. That's the time to make your podcast then. I've got my raunch on. <laughs> Yeah, that's happened a few times. Um, but yeah, I just, yeah, it's, it's interesting how these things happen to us, these big life events that, you know, basically push us forward into making the scary decision that we were maybe procrastinating or just not sure or able to make because 
you know, an element of fear was holding us back. But I think after something like that, you know, what what what's the worst that can happen next? I mean, you've been to to the depths of um, of terror, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think sometimes it's uh, we just need a good slap in the face, and if we don't move by ourselves, then and we're wishing for something, then uh, universe is going to make it happen in another way. So, big lesson to act upon what I'm wishing and dreaming for and wanting to manifest. How would you describe the difference between life in Amsterdam and life in Ibiza? There's just, it's not comparable really. I mean, Amsterdam for us is like a golden cage. You can make really good money, um, security in housing, the, the system, the structure, everything was really beautifully done, beautifully, you know, and for startup businesses, it was, there was a lot of support. I mean, other than the 260 days of rain, it felt to us like sort of a trap because we had we had the good apartment, we had the cash, we had both successful businesses, but we were bored. We were living in a city. Um, both of us wanted to live outside more, and that was our big incentive of coming here. Like We wanted to not have outside as a transitionary place between two insides, but actually be able to be more outside, grow our own vegetables, have our hands in the soil, you know. Um so I think, you know, we moved here with the idea that it would be a sort of heightened quality of life. That's what we were aiming for. But actually, we work harder here than we worked in Amsterdam. So I was like, oh, hang on a minute. That didn't quite work out. But we're getting there. Now there's getting more balance. But um, so I'd say, yeah, living in the countryside, not seeing the colour of your the neighbour's eyes over the road because you all live in such close vicinity, mm-hmm. having space having our hands in the soil daily. Big, big difference. Mm. I mean, when I first got to know you, I think it was maybe seven, six or seven years ago, perhaps. And yeah, you just set up the, the fermented, or the ferment business that you that you now run under the label of the Los Fermentistas. And I mean, I've never seen two people work harder and chop chop things and and create. It was like, God, that's a lot of work to do what you guys do, creating all those incredible beautiful elixirs of kombucha and um you know all the other fizzy fizzy wonderful things that you make but I feel I didn't really know anything about you know fermented fermented goods at the time and it kind of felt like that was kind of the first learning curve that I'd have of experiencing what you make and and watching that grow and seeing all the things that you did to make that happen was not only growing your own veg but chopping it up you know to a certain spec and and (laughs) doing all the the massaging and the kind of mixing and the you know wow yeah, we both get bored really easy, so we've got a lot of things that we like to do. But, uh, I mean, the fermented thing, like, came, uh, what was maybe two years before we moved here, I think, two or three years, and I tried live sauerkraut for the first time, and my body had a, a reaction, like like it was something I'd been missing, like I could feel this sort of shudder in my body, like, what, what was that? And then I spoke to a friend of mine that has a fermented food company in New Zealand, and he was like, you're going to love kimchi. Here's a basic recipe, make kimchi. So I started making kimchi. I got my first scoby, and that's what I was doing in Amsterdam. Just fondling your mic, sorry. And um, and then Jakob was kind of over my shoulder watching what I was doing, and I was like, no, nah, you're taking over the kitchen everywhere else. He was the, the cook at the time. But this is mine. These ferments are mine, you know. And then slowly, slowly, he was just so curious. I was like, okay, let's get you a SCOBY. He got his SCOBY and then slowly started making more experiments. Then we had like splattered purple and orange roof and walls. 
I was just kind of wowing really at the the, the incredible work. work that you yeah. do do. I mean, when I first began to understand what it was that you produce, which is obviously things that make your gut heal and feel healthy and um, bring back those wonderful juices and, and, and bacterias that, you know, we kind of lose in the day-to-day doings of eating naughty things and drinking naughty things on an island like this one. And and I, when I really kind of got my head around, you know, how hard you work and the way you chop things, I think when I first had a conversation with Jacob about how much chopping he does, I was like blown away by the dedication, really. And he's not actually stopped, bless him, he's still like... Well, we're five years in and he's still like making kimchi every week, which has got to change at some point and get someone else in to do it. But um, but yeah. Do you think he actually enjoys it though? I think that, I mean, Jakob does that for work, but what he enjoys is like at home, and that's where I wanted you to come visit. Um, it's experimental lab and he just loves making all sorts of experiments with all sorts of things. He's always, always on a mission. And I'm like having to sort of calm me, like, listen, I need the space, I need the kitchen for this, or, you know, and stop him sometimes because he's just, he's on it all the time. Our original idea was to grow the vegetables for our products, but that was a little bit too ambitious. And um, and I guess as well, you know, we both came here having had, we were bored in Amsterdam. So we came here with drive, ambition and, and motivation. And we also really believe and believed and still believe in the in the power of the ferments and the benefits of the ferment, the power of the ferments. By the power of Grayskull. <laughs> I just feel like I want to get my Thundercat out. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like something we really stand so strongly behind. Like it made huge health benefits for me. I used to have really bad skin. And then I started eating ferments. My skin cleared up. My digestion got better. My sleep got better. So all of these things that I was like... I, You know, doctors had told me that I needed to take antibiotics once a year for my skin to be sort of regulated. I did that for two years, feeling really, really uncomfortable about it. And then found sauerkraut. And it just felt like I had the power in my hands. And I know it's not the same for everyone, but it's my story. And suddenly I'm healing myself with something I'm able to make. And I thought that that is something definitely worth sharing for maybe others that aren't up for making it but could really benefit from it. And... So that was the sort of driving force behind the whole thing. And um, and then, yeah, with a new brand out on the market, it's like we have to work it, push it. You know, we were also new on the island, so we didn't really know how things work. So we went everywhere, said yes to everything, did loads of things. Uh, and now we're kind of managing to like, okay, we're not working every weekend. We're not saying yes to everything. We kind of can be a bit more discerning because we... Mm-hmm. We know know our market better, know ourselves better, and and you know we're getting older and a bit more tired. <laughs> Absolutely, but I think you know one of my favourite places that I used to always run into you, which was kind of as you said, almost everywhere I went, I was like, oh, there they are, there's the fermentistas selling their wonderful kimchi, and it was like you know you guys were hustling hard to to get that brand out there, which was very very admirable but I I remember always seeing you at Woo Moon making the most delicious fermented cocktails and that was always the place that I made a beeline for before I got as soon as I got in the door and I was like you know obviously told myself how healthy they were to have at least three (laughs) to be able to dance and uh, make a fool of myself. (laughs) That was really nice actually the Woo Moon uh, project because part of part of the uh, incentive with that was to try to show fermented drinks as something that could be more mainstream and more popular you know basically use them as mixers rather than you know sugary ginger beer or sugary juices or whatever let's use kombucha instead and then I was making tapache which is a Mexican maybe you remember it's a pineapple fermented drink 
mix that with mezcal and things like that and um and it was just really 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 nice to get it out sort of more on the mainstream it got the brand out but it also just opened up the conversation about ferments and made it not such an alien thing because i think you know even though like i think in ibiza we kind of some years behind a lot of the food and drink trends but um even here it felt like even though people are coming from international people from all over it still felt like the first year we were educating people mostly and just informing 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 and then slowly it started to like get gain popularity which is quite handy because i remember you know when i went to brazil to the rio carnival i think it was 2004 or three or something and i just started to eat this like purple gunge really the next day and it really healed my hangovers and I was like what is this stuff and um found out that it was this berry this um, from the Amazonian jungle which was obviously acai but at the time I had no idea what it was and I've you know researched it and then started to import it when I lived in London and then I made my move to go down to Brighton and it kind of felt like the same thing because no one you know it was all like cream teas and you know butter on toast and mm, delicious things um but you know no one had a clue what this stuff was and even in London at that time when I was really trying to sell it and make a business out of it um you know and obviously you had to import it frozen because it was so highly perishable like two minutes off the tree and it was basically almost dying so it gets frozen as soon as the berry is harvested so obviously to import it was then frozen (laughs) going up to London from the train in Brighton sitting on blocks of acai to try and defrost them in time to go and do like a tasting and a testing session in London and they're trying to persuade people that it was you know the highest antioxidants that they'd ever experienced anywhere in the world and anything they'd ever put in their mouth and people just look at me like quizzically just going like what are you talking about these blocks of like purple berries that you're trying to flog us that they always told me tasted like fish or cucumber or olives was one of the other comments I heard and it was it was like trying to sell you know um something that you know no one no one had any faith in they didn't understand the science behind it and it was just like it was funny but it reminds me of that you know when I got here there was no acai going on obviously now there is loads of it everywhere and everyone loves it and everyone eats it but back then trying to persuade people to like understand what the benefits of eating this kind of stuff was 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 really hard work so I'm quite impressed really with the way you guys have like you know, really spread. I mean, I, I don't know any shop that I go into now that you guys don't have a presence there. That's nice to hear. Yeah, I mean, we've pretty much tried to cover moat, mo- but there's also not that many shops that it works in, you know, so I've covered everywhere that we can, I think. Um, but yeah, it's that, uh, you know, when we first came over here, we were like, okay, Spanish market, it's all too, it's way too spicy. Mm-hmm. So we cut the spice in half. When we got our first Ibisenk, um phone call or client we were both celebrating because we're like finally we've got a local you know uh and then a spanish friend said to us he said you know you guys are incredible you've managed to actually sell come to a place to sell fermented spicy food to the spanish like what are you doing i was like actually like it is quite an achievement it is quite an achievement but it's growing in popularity i mean now as well you've got some really big kombucha brands on the market which at first I was kind of like, oh no, you know, like uh, they're, they're sort of coming in and sweeping the island with this huge brand. At the same time, it's a blessing in disguise, well, blessing in disguise, but it's opened up a huge market within the Spanish community. Everyone knows it now, they're getting prom- it, the promotions happening from another brand, but now people are sort of looking at the local brands and with a little more openness, which is quite, quite interesting. Yeah, it's, the, uh, it's trending. 
I love it when you're trending, babes. I think it's, yeah, it's a very interesting thing. And I think you guys have, you know, got some really beautiful branding projects and exciting things happening this summer, which I'm very looking, uh, very much looking forward to seeing unfold. But, you know, you do so many other things other than just ferment, self-fermented goods and, um, you know, hang out in markets and educate people on on the benefits of one's gut health. Um, You know, you also kind of perform as well. Where, Where, you know, where did that sort of start? Um, performance, I've always been performing since I was little. I was always into on stage or in some acting group or some theatre company. And I studied media and performance. That was my sort of education growing up. And then when I moved to Amsterdam, I kind of felt I didn't really find my way with performers. I had a really good network in England. I moved to Amsterdam in 99 and I somehow creatively didn't find my way back onto stage. So I went more into teching and I became a video technician, theatre lighting technician, then I went into clubs doing the same. And then from my travels in Mexico, I'd I'd worked with a dance troupe there where we all wore white and had um, projections, uh, just like still slides on us that we dance in. And then I came up with this idea because I studied, God, I'm, I'm really jumping all over the place, but I also studied contemporary dance within part of this media and performance background. And um, one of the artists that we focused on was Louis Foyer, and she, um, I think she's 20s or 30s, and she danced in, like, a huge piece of, like, lots of white material, basically. So she'd have, like, poles in her arms about a metre long and multiple layers of white material that she could make into massive circles and patterns around her. So then I thought, well, if I put that with the projections on, that could look pretty epic. And then I was looking for somebody that would make fractals for me, and then I married him. And so, yeah, I was like, right, I make fractals, okay. Um, Sorry, makes makes what? What? Fractals. Um, What's his dust? I, I'm wondering how to explain fractal. Um, like patterns, basically. And fractals are, are sort of like, would be the same pattern getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Imagine like... Five stars, five stars in them, five stars in them, five stars in them, fractal. I mean, yeah, being educated here, never heard of that word in my entire life. So this is how you met your husband, he, he made you a fractal. Actually, I met Jacob ten years before in a squat. We both used to live in a squat in Amsterdam, that's where we first met, at a party there. And then ten years later we got to, together, then he, I realised he was a fractal man. So therefore he was a keeper. <laughs> and we did like three weddings, like when we got married we did our sort of spiritual wedding in Austria. Um, we did our legal wedding in Amsterdam and then we did a party. And the party was the first time that we pulled out the show. He'd made, I had the idea for the costume. I knew how I wanted it to look, but I didn't know how to do it. And this is the kind of, this is the sort of story with me and Jakob. I have a lot of ideas. I know w- what it should look like, but I don't know how to get there. I'm not very nimble fingered. I've got a lot of creativity, but the actual practice of getting it out Whereas Jakob's really good at that. So, you know, when we're flowing, we make a great team and he made the costume. And so for the third, for the wedding party, we performed for the first time, Light Catcher, we call it. And we've been doing that since. Since 2011 was the first show. And we've done shows all over, actually. Australia, New Zealand, Bali, uh, Poland, Germany, England. Yeah, we go around a little bit. We went around a little bit with it. And it's been really well received here. 
as well on the island. So I'm dancing this huge white costume, he's projecting live animations onto me. And it kind of is like taking people into, the idea is to create these sort of dream, dreamscape moments where the dancer gets lost in abstraction. You don't really know what's going on. There's a moving and morphing screen and it's kind of like, and shifts our perspective, our idea of reality. Wow, I really want to see this. I mean, I think I maybe had a close shave with possibly seeing something like that when we also met at a ridiculous wedding, um, maybe a year or two ago, organised by Le Grand Bouffe, who have also been on this podcast for our New Year's Eve episode, when they made some crazy wild festival for a couple who wanted the festival to incorporate food from every country they'd ever visited. There was kind of like food stalls from around the world of which you and I were... Kind of hostessing part of. We were selling when we were supposed to be like an English fate and we were like really proud cake makers. And you went renegade with someone and left me. I yeah. Did. I did. That wasn't one of my uh, finest moments really, but it was uh, all very last minute. And someone just asked me to run to the front and help this guy out with receiving the guests. And they looked panicked. And um, yeah, I think there was a bit of mescal that was consumed prior to that moment. And all of a sudden, all the lines got blurry and it just turned into a whirlwind. I was a cake baker all alone. Can't even remember what accent I had, but it was something very English, like mine, I guess. I would have preferred to have stayed on the path and done our uh, our cake uh, affair because it was uh, a well-rehearsed world. And we were wearing the outfits as well. We went down to the the one and only second-hand shop in Santillario. Well, there's there is one more now. There's a couple more popping up, I think, since COVID. But it was a it's such a beautiful spot near the bus stop, and I really love that shop. It's incredible. But I couldn't believe that I found this you know real kind of 50s outfit and we really went to town actually with uh, trying to be an authentic women from the wi i think we did a great job we did a really great job it was a very strange day but i got really in in character i love that sort of stuff pop me on in a character and away i go away she blows i got stuck as mary poppins one time actually you did call me mary poppins but i got stuck as mary poppins for got too too into character there that's a story for another time Oh, I don't know. I do. <laughs> I do love a bit of Mary Poppins, I can't deny. I'd love to break into song, but I don't think I really want to subject anybody to that. I think, you know, my point was, were you dance? I think you were dancing later on at that party, but I actually left quite early. Oh, yeah, that's true. We did a show there. Did the white, white fractal come out? The light catcher, we call it, yeah. Light catcher came out. Yeah, it wasn't one of the easiest shows. I find that... A lot of, you know, we've done corporate shows. <coughs> we do some, some shows with uh, events companies and stuff. And I often find that, you know, the more alternative kind of bookings seem to flow. If people just leave us to our own devices, we know where the show works. We know how, you know, but it doesn't really work like that. You have to be yeah. able to take direction sometimes. So, yeah, it was okay. It wasn't our best show. Mm. Yeah. I mean, how would you describe what's coming up this summer in comparison to all of, you know, the last sort of five years of running here, running there and doing a lot of parties and performances and, you know, like irons and a lot of different fires? You know, it's always I never have a clue what the summer's going to look like before I get there. We're not the sort of people that get, well, we're not, we have some options on some potential events with the Alchemy Bar, which is the fermented drinks bar and the pop-up food. Um... But I don't really know how the summer's going to look. My main focus, our main focus, is on the products and boosting the sales. We've just got a new kitchen, so obviously more expense. 
Um, so it's just it's kind of boosted the whole professionalism. Everything's kind of gone upper, scaled up, which is great and exciting. I don't really know what events are going to be happening this year. You know what? What's what's what? Are the, last year we did Punjab Abbey Market with um, street food every Wednesday, which was amazing, a lot of fun, and just really nice. Four hours on a Wednesday afternoon, making pat, you know, pad thai. Um, but I'm not sure if that's happening this year. I don't know. That's, yeah, really have no idea. And that's that, that's something I find quite challenging here. Is that I'm I kind of. I can be quite chaotic, so I need quite a lot of structure, and that's quite hard here because you never know what's coming your way. You, you really, definitely do not, and um, yeah, you have to kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Really, I mean, I can get to sometimes when I was purely yoga teaching for a few, good few years. It was like I, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to have a very busy summer, and then bang, you know, the end of May kicks in, and then suddenly phone starts ringing and it, the inbox is full and then it's just like absolutely mental for the next three months and it just does not stop until sort of mid-September and you get to the end of it and you're like why did I ever doubt that that was going to happen it was yeah it is a very strange scenario that I've never experienced anywhere else in the world or any other place that I've lived of of not knowing and not knowing where my next you know gig is going to come from and then suddenly the floodgates open and I'm absolutely done and ruined and pop a fork in me because I'm literally uh, yeah I need a break after that like everybody does at the end of a crazy summer here that's the thing that I I find really challenging here is that come the end of the summer you know I burnt out is a very extreme way to say it but I am pretty exhausted and done and I don't find it's the healthiest lifestyle for me so last year I learned the art of saying no and that was really good. Um, we were working markets every Saturday and Sunday for all the years that we've been here. We didn't have a weekend, but we didn't, you know, have a days off in the week as well. We were just going, going, going. And now, like, actually, let's make time for us, for our home, for, you know, us as a, as a mini family, just me and Jacob and the cats and the chickens. But, you know. um, and the cabbage. Uh, yeah, we grow cabbage. <laughs> pumpkins, too. Um, but, yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm sort of trying now to see if there's potential to find more of a balance. And last year was really good, you know, just being able to sort of be a bit more exclusive in a way of like really choosing. We know our market better. We know where to put our energy. We know what gigs we want to do, what we don't want to do, what's going to exhaust us, what's going to, you know, we're kind of managing to find our way a little bit more um, with optimal energy and, uh, not exhaust ourselves so I'm quite curious about this year seeing as last year was quite successful in being able to like have time for ourselves and not run at everything you know talk to me about the um walking theatrical kind of uh magical mystery tour that you were also uh created and basically you know curated with uh, lots of interesting wonderful performers on the island because I think you know this island um doesn't really have a massive name in terms of you know theatre and performing arts I mean it definitely has pockets of fabulousness like obviously Alex Gray our wonderful mutual friend who was on the podcast just recently and obviously we did Lab 101 but I think to, to create something a little bit um, more kind of you know using the nature and the, the island in the way that it's you know organically already there as a, as a playground and a place to to perform 
struck me as a bloody amazing idea and I really kind of wish that I'd been able to to go to that because I remember Joe telling me um, from Theatre of the Ancients about that exact thing and thinking oof I'd love to come to that I'm not quite sure why I didn't but there was a reason for it at the time but it sounded like you know such a great idea and I know that that was your baby so where did that actually come from? That was birthed in October between Liz uh, uh, Konecki and myself um, having a breakfast together she was working on a project with Jacob had stayed overnight her and I were sitting and just talking about our performance backgrounds and um, she'd done lots of sort of um, walking tours in Barcelona different apartments that people would go to and see different pieces of art and I'd had this dream to do a walk from San Carlos to my house maybe with food or foraging or some theatre pieces along the way because that's that's very much my ilk is something theatrical. And then it kind of... I'm not even sure exactly how the... Through, through that brainstorm, the idea was let's curate artists. You know, there's a lot of artists that don't have anything going on from this whole period of pandemic. So maybe let's let's curate all of these artists on a on a long walk uh give them a theme which the theme was transitions and try to have it sort of site specific and um and choose different artists from with different mediums so the the general because we could only walk with six people at that time each group was led by a guide the guide um was a futuristic forest bather um, I've been studying Shinrin-yoku, which is the Japanese um, therapy, ecotherapy of um, forest bathing, which is uh, connecting with nature, basically, understanding that we, we are interdependent. Uh, and so the idea was to that not only would, were people perceiving the artwork, but they were also treating the forest as art. So there would be sort of uh, instructions to really take time to smell, to watch, to touch, to hear, to observe. Uh, the whole walk was in silence. And the groups led in in groups of six, led by the the forest bather, would go into different pockets of the forest where they'd meet different artists. Each artist was responsible for their own installation, their get in, their take out, their you know their whole their whole structure. We had the proposals from the wall. We knew what they were going to do, but until the first day, we didn't actually manage to see. We we we, we weren't able to see any of them because we couldn't rehearse it because it's all kind of like pirate style through a forest which parts of the land are owned by people parts are sort of public but we did it very renegade um and it was a huge success i mean we had a waiting we we had 60 tickets sold we had a waiting list of another 20 um people would take the walk from san carlos to my house which is just by calamisteo where they'd stop and have a a cocktail at the end or something that was fast and we just hadn't anticipated how move people would be and how much it would actually affect people in a you know there was a lot of emotion a lot of depth of emotion that I hadn't even sort of foreseen or thought about which was really quite quite magical to see that because it was a very contemplative walk and asking people to really just focus and be and I think, you know, this idea of us all being kind of locked away against, you know, behind closed doors and then suddenly not only of our kind of ability to go to the cinema, the theatre, you know, to a gig and to see creative performances, 
been taken away but then you know the idea to then obviously reset that completely and put it outside and put it in a under the stars with you know the wind on your skin and particularly in the middle of the summer of Ibiza it's there's nothing more magical than that kind of um, hour at the end of the day and I think to put something in that setting like Joanna Ruby also did with her um, her other amazing performance piece last last summer in that threshing circle that I went to see and I think you were also part of as well I mean, you know, these are really gorgeous ideas that I think that the island really should create more of because I think there's so many spaces that people have um, in a place like this that are tucked away, that perhaps are out of sight. But, you know, gradually, as the connections get made, you know, we do find out about these wonderful places that can actually host these kinds of experiences. And I think, you know, that is the magical joy of Ibiza, but I find it really strange that it's hard you know it's quite hard to know what's actually happening and where it's happening and then you can see all these things on instagram and you didn't even know that any of this stuff was was really kind of unfolding so it's a kind of an interesting beast to try and get your stuff out there and to to create and to get people to come but if you had lots of people would you would you think about maybe doing that again this summer no not this summer i mean i'm very keen to do some more sort of immersive site-specific work um definitely have quite some ideas in 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 process but it was a lot of it was a lot of work it was maybe nine months I think uh, of you know okay we started we birthed the idea in the October by December we were walking with the groups of artists and showing them the different locations to inspire them and start the conversation and then we did it in uh, it was the middle of May that we did it actually um so it was quite a process and and really intensive and quite nerve-wracking and it was the first time that I've done something like that here particularly um but back to your point I think the island is thirsty for this sort of stuff like I really I really realized that with transitions and then also seeing you know with working with Joanna and Theatre of the Ancients that it feels like it's the time for a different kind of art here you know, like people are thirsty for it. Um, so I would love to continue doing something along those lines, but I, um, I'm kind of need a little bit more of a break, wait to see when, you know, because I'd love to continue working with Liz as well. I think we, we made an incredible partnership. I've not worked with somebody where it was just so flowing and so on the same page all the time. It's great, great fun. And really committed and professional. Like, I, I loved her professionalism that we could really have that level that we both really wanted to achieve. So, you know, there's people like Alex Gray, um, Joanna Ruby that we're, we're sort of working with on different things as well. So I feel like it's the creative part of the island is really just since transitions has sort of opened up for me. And before that, I was, you know, food, 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 ferments, ferments, ferments. And yeah, doing my show, but it's a very individual thing. I'm on stage on my own. And now getting to work with other people, this whole new part of the island has opened up. So I'm just, yeah, seeing seeing what happens, writing down my ideas and uh, as and when feels like the right time, but I don't think it's going to be this year. What was your experience of uh, Lab 101 that obviously we both uh, partook in <laughs> last month in February? How did that kind of, um, how did you feel kind of being in that scenario of um, improvised drama essentially and like leaping on stage into the unknown and not really knowing kind of what was going to unfold? You know, no script, no planning, no, you know, real sense of 
enormous familiarity really with the with the group of people although we'd met obviously the day before and some of us knew each other it was definitely a very um, novel concept yeah and also I mean it was a beautiful experience because we all went in with the the you know the idea was they come in with your fears your nightmares and your phobias and um, the first kind of uh, interaction was like let's talk about our you know what we've what we brought to the table and everyone kind of had this sort of fear or phobia or nightmare and I came with a bloody long list I was oh my god um but by the end of the whole 24 hours or whatever it was those fears had quite quickly left uh new ones had come in their place but then they had also kind of made their way out but for me like the overriding feeling I had was that it, it was a really strong lesson in in not being afraid to to dare to jump and trust myself that I can pick up the pieces, you know, sort of thing, like in improvisation, you know, not being afraid of what people think of you. And, um, yeah, I felt like it was a homecoming. It's so nourishing getting back on stage. It had been a really, really long time. It wasn't the best time for me to have done the lab. I was busy with other things, but I was like, this is something for me. And I'm so pleased I did because it was so... That workshop space, that stage space, that, that, that expression, journeying, yeah, it's just a really comfortable space for me, which really feels uh, very nourishing. What, what feels nourishing about it? I have like a sort of sense of belonging on stage, like I feel really comfortable there, I think. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, obviously, it wasn't my my uh, comfortable space, and I knew pretty much that you know what I felt on the day was you know what was coming, and um, it was a very interesting thing, I think, to you know jump into that fear space and see what happens. And um, yeah, I just found the whole thing um, beautiful in terms of the connections made and the way that kind of built this kind of slightly hysterical. <laughs> hilarious brilliant yeah funny theatrical kind of um scenario between a a group of total strangers who kind of weren't because a lot of us knew each other it's a small island but it was um yeah it was intense I think is a word I would use um but you know really brought out I think a lot of different sides of a lot of different people in a lot of different ways perhaps differently to they expected so I think it was you know a really interesting experiment essentially um, and none of us really knew I think apart from a few of us that have had more experience than others like how how that would actually look so it was kind of brave I think of Alex to to just make that happen and it's also you know with improvisation what what I I mean I'm a bit of a control freak uh, I think and most of us are um but you have to release control and go with the flow. And that, for me, is something so beautiful about that experience. It's like you go onto stage, you have an idea of where you want the scene to go, you have an idea of who your character is and, you know, what you want to bring. Someone walks on and they change the whole thing completely and you've got to flow with it. And I think that that, that dance is really quite beautiful of just letting go of, like, preconception, preconceived ideas and, and being in the moment and flowing and... I was something I, I felt so engaged in the actual uh, performance night. The audience weren't, they just didn't really, it really didn't matter. I didn't mind, I mean, of course, they, you know, audience is important, but I was so engaged with what was going on on stage and, and that presence and that, yeah, it was, it's, it was really beautiful to feel. 
it felt like we'd built like a little mini family for those 48 hours and I think the terror of knowing that the culmination of all of that was going to be actually an onstage performance where we didn't know what was going to happen was immediately made you kind of want to kind of befriend and kind of get to know these people a lot quicker than you normally would because you were like oh god is this person going to support me if it all goes horribly wrong are they going to help me are they going to they're going to catch me if I fall yeah yeah you want your allies that are going to kind of yeah and there was a, a moment I remember like you know your fear that you came in with and then um and there was a moment in the performance where you were on stage in your fear and you voiced it and you know whereas before all of us have been quite sort of hectic around or changing the 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 theme or the topic or whatever there was that moment where everyone just focused on you in that moment because we all knew what was going on and it was so so poignant uh, so interesting yeah I really felt held by the group I am I thought it was it was interesting on the actual performance to see you know I felt like on the during the day we had some really beautiful improvisations with full connectivity and and really interesting kind of topics that were flowing through. <clears throat> and then it was interesting to see on the night with the with the pressure of the, the audience there, the sort of defaults or go-to or get-out-of-jails or whatever that people would sort of go to to sort of try to fill the space or to feel comfortable or whatever. So seeing all of our tools, uh, our kind of evasive tools coming up. And it was an interesting, interesting... I hope there'll be plenty more of those things. I'd love to go and see another group doing it. That is exactly what I was thinking. Like, roll on the next one so I can sit in the audience and uh, actually spectate and not be feeling that um, incredible chunk of uh, raw fear at the back of my throat, which, um, yeah, blimey. I mean, you know, I'm just really amazed that I actually did that in the first place and got through it and I'm still here to tell the tale so to be honest you know that's all I took away from it was like you know you can do incredibly scary things when you put your mind to it and you know wonderful things come out of those kinds of experiences but I, I you know I really do think that the island definitely needs more of those kinds of you know intimate theatre experiences and um, yeah I know that Alex will definitely be doing some more bits and pieces and you know hopefully along with Ben as well and yeah I'm sure you'll be involved. So I'm excited to see what this summer would bring. You guys have already uh, put yourself out there in some capacity this summer. And um, I just wanted to end by saying that I have seen some incredible um, poster campaigns coming up from the Fermentistas, which um, have provided many a chuckle on my travels. And actually, my boyfriend even um, WhatsApped me a picture of that exact poster um, not that long ago. And I just, um, yeah, I laughed hard good i mean that's the point of this particular campaign is to you know a bit of a tongue in the cheek laugh at you know what's going on on the island the big parties the big billboards and um yeah we were sitting one evening me and jacob and it the slogan just popped in bleep me i'm fermented you know rather than bleep me i'm you know and uh so we had quite a giggle with it and then thought let's go let's you know, let's get that out there for our island folk to have a little bit of a laugh. And so since we put the posters up, which are still going up now, but we've had multiple photos sent to us of the posters and people kind of really appreciating it. So so our little tongue-in-cheek for the island is here and a, bit, a way to remind people that, you know, fermentistas are still here because, you know, we've done a lot of being present. Now we need to just remind people that we're still we're still going so yeah we've got some more slogans in the in the process more marketing campaigns coming up um i'm excited about where the business is going 
I'm excited about how life on the island feels with the creative juices and other things going on, studying Shimrin Yoku still. And uh, yeah, it's all very, very exciting. How are you feeling about sort of club land opening again this summer? I'm not really into clubs, so it doesn't really, you know, whatever. But the idea of the island getting full of tourists again, I mean, it's the same every summer, it's always a bit daunting. And I guess it's going to be even busier this year because we haven't had clubs for the last two years. So, yeah, let's see. Uh, curious and curiouser. Well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing the F Me I'm Fermented posters splattering across the island, replacing the uh, big fat faces of uh, lots of uh, widely known DJs and seeing what uh, can run amok across uh, the south. And um, good luck with that. I look forward to, to seeing uh, how that all unfolds. And good luck, yeah, with the next um, instalment of the spin-off of, uh, you know, the theatrical side of uh, one's performances and everything else that you bring to the table in that department, which is lots. So thank you so much for joining us here on the Reset Rebel podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.